Blog Talk Radio.
Hello, everyone. I hope you're still hanging in there. We're still working on some of these technical issues. Some music is going to play until we kind of get this thing together. your patience tonight as we dealt with some technical issues with Blog Talk Radio. And this is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I introduced our special guest, Char McCargo Ball, earlier. So, Char, welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Thank you, Bernice. Well, Char, I am just looking forward to you sharing with us your research on African-Americans and 19th century Alexandria, Virginia. So I'm going to really turn it over to you so that you could tell us about the significance of, of your research and, and just everything that we need to know and understand about Alexandria's African-American community. Thank you, Bernice, again. Um, I have been um, actually researching in Alexandria for a very long time. I was born in Alexandria, though I have no roots, Holly, in Alexandria. Uh, my family uh, are originally from Halifax County and Mecklenburg and all the neighboring counties around Halifax County. My parents migrated and um, and uh, had all their children in Alexandria, so my, me and my siblings are the first generation in our family. Unknown to me when I was growing up, I, I was one of the children that were, uh, for, for my age group, where they really started 
teaching black history in school, but only basically they only gave a little information that African Americans came here as slaves, and that's what I heard when I was in elementary school. I didn't really get into African American history until I went to college. And I took my first black history tour of Alexandria when I was 31 years old. And I was hauling on the streets telling the uh, tour guide who was once my um, um, the director of the uh, recreation center in Alexandria, Mr. Anderson, I said, why didn't y'all tell us this in school? He said, because we didn't know it ourselves. And oh, um, wow. so what happened is that they were telling us about this, took us to the slave um pen on Duke Street, and I said, I can't believe I used to come up here and do the family's laundry and did not even know it was a slave pen here, and I was just really screaming and said, how can this happen? You know, um, my generation should have at least known it. Their generation, you know, even though it might have been hush-hush, should have known it. And what happened is that um, as a genealogist and started working with the city of Alexandria and became their uh, genealogist on a cemetery project I was um asked to do, and um, also um, having a mentor, um, Mr. Ferdinand Day, who died January the 2nd of this year. He was my mentor. He was he was born in 1918. And um, I would go and visit him on a weekly basis, and he would tell me about all the things that he knew. And he said one of the things, he, he said he was tired, really got to the point in his life, he was really tired. He did all that he could do, and he was a remarkable man. And we mentioned him in the in the book that um, me and several other co-authors did, um, all the things that he did in his lifetime. He said he was worried about passing. Only one thing that he that he was worried about is that it will be no one left behind to tell the story of all the accomplishments that blacks in Alexandria did. And I promised him, I said, Mr. Day, if I God give me as many years as given you, I will do my best to make sure they won't forget. So every time I get tired, I said, God, how can I do anymore? I think about my promise I, I did. Um, I gave Mr. Day before he died. And so that keeps me going. Alexandria has a remarkable history. Um, as most people know about George Washington, he he uh, went to school in Alexandria to one of the academies when he was a child. But everybody knows that George Washington walked the street. The main street in Alexandria is George Washington Street. And then um, they have all of this colonial history. But the other side of Alexandria, people do not know about the accomplishments that many, many African-Americans made in Alexandria. They were movers and shakers. They had a large amount of freed people along with slave people, and then they had the slave pen, and they were taking out a, a thousand people, you know, a year, taking them down to um, buying slaves, asking owners to, uh, to sell the slaves to, um, it was Armfield and Franklin, and then it was Price, um, a slave trader, he also uh, purchased slaves, and, and, and they were taking them down to Texas and um, to uh, New Orleans to sell them in the same environment that you had a lot of free slaves. So you wonder how did they feel. The least little thing they could have, you know, they did wrong, they could have been sold too down down in um, New Orleans or uh, Texas. And with all of this, they made a life for themselves, and they made lots of contributions to Alexandria and and beyond Alexandria. But if nobody's there to tell their story, it'll be lost. And so I figure, you know, you got to have a project in life that you really attach to. And so I made this basically my life work. 
Well, it is so wonderful that you have chosen to make this your life's work because somebody has to tell the story. And you're keeping that promise, and you're keeping that promise for generations to come. So thank you so very much for coming on just to give us information that we certainly would never have known because you just said something that I had no idea about was the slave pens and the thousands of people that went through the slave pens in Alexandria. So tell us, I mean, just just take us through your journey of finding this information and then tell us the stories of the people you feel we need to know about. Okay. <clears throat> when I uh, worked on the um I'm still working on the um Freedman Cemetery. Um and the Freedman Cemetery is located on uh Washington and Church Street in Alexandria and during the Civil War um, the unions took over Alexandria very early in 1861, matter of fact, May of 1861. And so um, slaves who um, ran away and knew that Alexandria was under Union control came there and where the unions fought in other parts of uh, Virginia as well as in over in Maryland, um, many of the slaves ran away and joined the Union and, and, and basically traveled with them until they got to a place that um, they could be able to settle that was Union control. So in doing that project and finding descendants of, um, of, the, of the people uh, who are buried there, I was privileged to see a lot of um, contributions that African Americans made in Alexandria. Um, freed blacks were buried in that same cemetery during that period of time, which was from 18, the city want to say 1864 to 1868 or 69. I believe it was earlier because the person who recorded the death started recording them in 1861. But they said that legally the cemetery was not a cemetery until 1864, so that's what they go by. But what happened is that freed and and, and, and formal slaves, runaways, contrabands, whatever they want to call them, they were buried in the same cemetery. So what happened is that they said that the apple don't fall too far from the tree. Many of those mm -hmm. descendants still live in Alexandria or in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was able to locate over um, at least 145 people that were buried there. I found their descendants that equal up into the thousands. And so in the process of doing that, I found out that these people, uh, just not too long, running away from slavery, the first thing besides feeding themselves and getting clothes on their back, they went to school. Mm -hmm. School was so important to them, they went to school. The Freedmen um, Freeman, um, Bureau, as soon as they came about, they, they had a school in Alexandria. And the people who fought for this were free free African-Americans were already free, they immediately started fighting for schools and started teaching the blacks who were enslaved, who could not read and write, they started teaching them. Uh, many of them, I traced those people and found out that George Seaton, um, he was a, a long line of freed blacks. He was a builder, and he built a lot of the older houses that are still standing today in Alexandria that are over 100 years old. George Brother was the first black alderman in Alexandria in politics. He also was um, Charles Sumner. When Charles Sumner died, he was one of the pallbearers for Charles Sumner. He also now I have two, I have a question coming out, and I'm sorry mm -hmm. to, to stop you as you talk, but there's mm -hmm. a question: What is the name of the Freedman School? 
the Freedman School, okay, and um, Joyce Seaton and a group of freed blacks um, 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 fought for two schools to be built in Alexandria that later became public schools. They were built and um, finished by 1870. George Seaton built them himself, but he had the money from the from the Freedman Bureau. They were called Hollowell School, that was for girls, and Snowden School for boys. They were the two okay. two public schools that were built from the Freedmen's Bureau money, and George Seaton built them. I have a George so Hollowell School for the girls and Snowden School for school the boys. School for boys, yes. Mm-hmm. And they stayed in existence until 1920, until they built Parker Gray School. Now Parker Gray ended up being a high school, but it was first built um, to cover elementary up to the seventh and eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So, so after that, African Americans had to go someplace else to get. Of further education, and many came into D.C. Some never returned back to Alexandria. Uh, so what happened? They went to D.C. and went to Armstrong, and they were light enough and had some uh, some um, affluency in their family. They went to Dunbar. Okay. And so that that's how you know that went. But um, anyway, so Soton, um so uh, Seaton built this school, and he's he was well known, but the average African American did not know about him. You know, um, his house still stands. Matter of fact, his house was up for sale about four months ago for $1.2 million. And the houses in Alexandria are not that big. They're very small. And um, But he was a builder, and he built many things. He And um, and so he was very affluent. His brother uh, was into politics. He was also in politics. Also, John Seaton, um, during the time of Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederate uh, uh, um, Virginia, which uh, Richmond was their capital, um, they would not, you know, um, 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 they pulled away and wanted to have us separate from the Union because they really thought they were going to win, I guess. And Jefferson Davis was appointed the president of um, of the Confederate, and his um, headquarters was in Richmond. After the Civil War, um, charges were brought against him for treason. Six African Americans served on that um, on, on the jur- uh, they were jurors, and and um, out of that six, four of them are from Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And I went all out and was able to obtain a picture through a, a private collector in Ohio and was able to get the picture of that grand jury. And um, oh, wow, yes, and I got to see what George Seaton looks like. And so, mm-hmm. um, and then also we have several. And out of the out of those um, African Americans that are on there, three of them I have already identified their descendants, and they connect to the cemetery. So they didn't even know that their ancestor served um, on the um, on the jury uh, for the treason of um, um, I mean Jefferson Davis treason trial, which never really came to because they kept having you know. Um, Delaying it, delaying it, delaying it until it just dissolved. But they did have a, a jury. Um, they had also a petty jury, and so I have both those um, pictures of of that. And um, it was taken well, in well, eighteen. No. Hmm? Go ahead. Go it ahead. was taken in eighteen sixty six. Well, now this is. I mean, I'm I'm just really amazed at this this story and the fact that you have you located the descendants. Now, how did you go about locating the descendants? 
Well, of course, all of us, you know, in our own training of genealogy, um, we um, I use genealogical skills. But what also I did, I thought outside the box. We all basically got the same type of training over the years. We all go to conferences. We all, you know, take the workshops or whatever. But you get to a point where you got to think outside the box. And as an Afri- doing African American or any ethnic group, because I'm finding out when I do Irish for my clients and when I do other, I got to think outside the box. No one way of doing genealogy going to work for everything that you do. So mm-hmm. my thing about it is that I knew Alexandra. I didn't know it as well as I thought I did. I know I know Halifax County with my eyes closed. I had to learn about Alexandra the way I knew about Halifax County where my people come from. I had to know it with my eyes closed. Growing up in Alexandria, I grew up in segregation, and what happened is that we were not allowed to go certain places, and we were even more restricted in my family because my parents were like foreigners. They were not from Alexandria. They were from the what we call the country, and therefore they were living in a city, and they never adjusted to the city. So we were only allowed to stay within our block. We could not go outside, and the only time we got to see other kids is when we went to school, um, you know, and and um, and the church that my mother had us attend. So we were really, really restricted. So when I started this project, I I had to deal with the African-American population, and and they they wouldn't even open their door to me, some of them. They said, well, who are you? Uh, and they and, and and Alexander's kind of funny funny than any place I research because you got to be a homegirl. First thing they ask, where are you from? <laughs> I say I mm-hmm. was born in Alexandria. What is your maiden name? I say Macargo. I don't know no Macargos, and they did because my parents didn't socialize, you know, outside of their little group. So therefore, I had to get people I knew that I went to school with and get their parents to basically um, uh, give me. Um, a letter of reference. So I say, well, can you call so-and-so? You know so-and-so? I say, yes. And, I, and they say, I'm going to call her now and, and see whether she knows you. And they'll call, and then, then once I got in, I was in. I was in. So it was like that took maybe two months. <laughs> that took about two months to get that. But one thing, I approached it by doing basic genealogy course. I did reverse. I knew who was buried there. The person who buried the people during the, uh, during 1864 to 1868, um, 69, he recorded their names. There's a lot of infants buried there with no first and last name, but majority of the people do have first and last names. So what I did, I, I decided to start with the unusual names because they'll be easier to track. I went to school with a, a lot of uh, people, and T.C. Williams, where I graduated from in 75, we were the largest class to this day. We are the largest class ever to graduate. We were the baby boomers, and it was over 2,000 of us at our graduation. I went through my yearbook, and I started seeing some of the same surnames, the unusual surnames that I went to school with that were buried at that cemetery, Haskins, Drayton. Drayton is not uh, unusual for South Carolina, but it's real unusual for, for Alexandria, Virginia. Mm-hmm. When I saw the last name Drayton, I just knew when I traced that person, that person was going to be coming from uh, South Carolina, and it didn't. That person actually came from Massachusetts and was here during the Civil War. That I don't know how. I have not found the person being in the military yet. But anyway, so I and I had Shanklins. I had you know several Shanklins. That's unusual. I I I avoided the Joneses and the Johnsons and all of those names. I went after the unusual names. Then I started going through high school 
yearbooks to see how long that surname stayed in Alexandria before it disappeared. No other way you can find that is based on looking at city directories. Census only gives you a 10-year. You only can go up to 1940. So what can give you something on a year-to-year basis besides the city directory is yearbooks. And so that's what I went. I went through yearbooks. Then I said, what black organizations exist in this area? And it was lots of black organizations that still exist. I started talking to them. I started saying, well, who can, who do I know can that know somebody who's a Mason? Who do I know who knows somebody who's in the Elks? Or, um, you know, so I started finding out through my little pool of people that who knew what, and they got me in. And then, oh, yes, we have somebody here with that last name, Drayton. Once I, con- once I had done the research up to <clears throat> the um, 1940s, to the census point, then <clears throat> I found somebody who had a Drayton last name, and I was able to then research them to the 40s and see whether they connect to the person that I got to the 40s in the reverse genealogy. And booze, I had the person. Now, mind you, I was only doing, I only had about two or three days to connect somebody. So I was doing this like going to McDonald's in the checkout line. You know, you order, and then you go around, you pay, and then you pick up your food. That's how fast I was doing it. Because I had, I had, I had a deadline. And so I stayed on it. And plus, I was working, I wasn't retired then. I was working full-time. So I had a full-time government job, and I had a full-time genealogy job. At the end of the one year, uh, one year when the city gave me a, um, a volunteer award, I had clocked in 280 hours, two, excuse me, 2,080 hours in one year, wow. plus my full-time and, job. Right, and how many people were you able to identify um, it in was that one-year period of time? That one-year period of time, I was probably able to identify um uh, probably about close to 50 families, 50, I mean, excuse me, 50 deceased people, but those families mm-hmm. are from generation to generation, so, you know, it's, 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 it's over 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. Now, when we had the um, dedication ceremony in September, um, we had over 500-something descendants came, and then we had close people who lived in Alexandria, and um, so, and we had a lot of press. It, it, it was, it, it was. I didn't get to enjoy it because I had to stay focused, and um, I was the go-to person because I was the face and the voice that the descendants knew. So I couldn't. I, I don't even remember half of the things that happened, um, you know, during that period of time. But they left with no complaints, and they felt connected. A lot of tears, a lot of crying, a lot of things they did not know about their people. And, um, you know, I was able to locate, when people, I was able to locate their descendants. I can tell them where they came from before they got here to Alexandria. Through their marriages, through their deaths, um, I was able to identify where they came from. Um, I have even taken some of them further back. I have taken um, uh, uh, at least one of the descendants. Her her, um, people were slaves. They were owned by their own father. He was a black Mm -hmm. slave owner. He was black. He owned his own people, and they came from Frederick, Virginia. And I, um, I went to Frederick, Virginia, and did research up there for her. And she's coming this spring, and I'm taking her to the plantation because I, lo- I located the plantation they came from. 
Mm-hmm. And um, then um, another um, um, descendant, I was able to take her into the 1700s. And so um, my job was only to connect them to the cemetery. So my job was only to get them to um, 1860 and to connect them to that cemetery. Some of them I have gone further. Other African Americans that I have researched in Alexandria have been a lot of political. I mean, they were on the ball. My people didn't even even know, no, no, probably didn't vote until much later. But some of these people were voting as soon as they say emancipation. <laughs> they were ready to vote. Also, what's unique about Alexandria, I did recent research, which we are getting ready to have a proclamation, uh, having the mayor. We're going to submit for him to um, to um, for, for him to read a proclamation and and then make an announcement unknown to Alexandria <clears throat> to the, to a lot of people in Alexandria. And unknown to me, I did some research and, and, and worked with the Library of Virginia and found out that Alexandria um, got emancipated April the 7th, 1864, not 1865. So the city of Alexandria thought, I guess, you know, 1865 was when the slaves were emancipated in Alexandria, but it wasn't. It was 1864. And um, matter of fact, they had a, a, a special convention that was in Alexandria, and they made that decision. And we're gonna we we putting in the um, we I researched it and I uh, got a lawyer to write it up, and um, it's being submitted to the, the city I think sometime this week or, or next week, and we asking that it be read on April the seventh, and that Alexandria declare that Emancipation Proclamation for the slaves in Alexandria was. April the 7th, 1864. I always had a problem with Juneteenth. I always had a problem with it because I think we are so unique. We we share experiences and we need to correct history where 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 it's needed. And we tend to okay. jump on the bandwagon of everything and not necessarily looking at our situation and and our geographical location. Um I knew that Virginia got their emancipation in April. What I did not know that it was not um, the same for all parts of, uh, of, of of Virginia. Some people in Virginia heard it, got it in May. Some people got it in April. Some people I did not know that. I just assumed that it was all April until I started doing the research and got involved with another historian at the Library of Virginia, and we worked together, and we were and he were and we were able to get this information that that was filed at the Library of Virginia. Juneteenth is unique to Texas and the, and those areas, but Juneteenth is not where all the slaves in the United States heard they were free. And I think we need to look at history and put it in its proper context, and 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 celebrate the uniqueness of of the situation that our ancestors came out of, and not just jump on just because it sounds a good thing, just because it's popular, it's something to do. As historians, as genealogists, we must make sure that we record things accurately. And so, um, by doing this, we're um, with the um, working with the um, Black History Museum. Alexandria will be celebrating starting this year Emancipation on April the seventh, and 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 going forward with that. Okay. Well, with that. We're going to take a quick break. I do see callers. People want to ask you questions. 
So, Charles, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and continue this interesting discussion. Just a quick break, everyone. Okay, thank you. Back to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Now, remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. And all of the shows are available as a podcast immediately after this broadcast, and they can be downloaded on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Char McCargo Barr discuss her research on the lives of African Americans in 19th century Alexandria, Virginia. And, Char, there's some comments coming out of the chat, and I have two callers on the line. But there's a comment that's really interesting. Uh, this is Cecilia, and she's saying she feels like a very lazy genealogist when she sees how much you have been able to accomplish. Pretty amazing. And then we had another comment from another guest who stated that her two ancestors are buried at the cemetery that you mentioned. They're the Quiet family. Oh, the Quanda family. Q U A N D E R. They're not Quanders, they're Quiet. No. Quiet. That's what she's saying. Quiet. Can she spell it, please? Q U I E T T E. Oh, okay. Hmm, okay. So it's something she can talk yeah. to you yeah, later yeah, she about can e- that. Yeah, she can email me. She can email you. And mm-hmm. we do have a question coming from area code 214. You're live. Do you have a question or comment? Yes, my question for your guest is, I have uh, many relatives who are from the uh, ancestors who are from Virginia uh, back in the 1800 to 1820 time frame. Are there any special resources that list the uh, that document um, the people who were brought from Virginia uh, to you know along the Natchez Trace into Mississippi and Louisiana? Are any documents of of slaves um, yes. being taken leaving, from leaving, okay. leaving Virginia? Yes. Do you know what part of Virginia? Well, some of them is Richmond, but I, since they came on, along the force of the road in Natchez, I suspect many came from Alexander. I don't know the exact okay. part, no. Okay, yeah. they do have slave manifests at the lib- I mean, at the uh, National Archives um, that lists um, underneath the different um, 
slave traders. Uh, one of the well-known ones is Onfield and uh, Franklin. I say Onfield and Franklin, and I think they existed around the 1820s. And um, they did that business for maybe 20, 25 years, and then they sold it to another slave trade trader. Um, if they took them by ship, they should be on one of those ship manifests. If they took them cross land, um, I have not seen those records yet. Because I, I, I didn't realize that they actually walked them. Some of them, they walked them from Alexandria down to New Orleans. They did, to, 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 to Mississippi, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, so you might Thank want to you. first try um, try to um, talking to the National Archives and uh, seeing about those uh, uh, records. I'm probably going to have to come to Washington D.C., but you can talk to them about it and make arrangements. So when you do come, they'll be available for you to review. Right, and some of the slave ship manifests uh, are on Ancestry. So you may be able to find what you're looking for on Ancestry. Thank you very much, caller. Uh, We have another caller, uh, area code 504. Do you have a question or a comment? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Bernice. I enjoy your show. I listen to it like I'm going to church on Sundays. I just got to put a suit on now. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I do do have a copy of the Slave Ship Manifest of my fourth great-grandmother and her six children that were brought to New Orleans from Alexandria, Virginia, mm-hmm. on a ship called the Tribune, on, owned by Armfield. Yes. The last name is Daggs, D-A-G-G-S, and I've been looking through directories uh, from Ancestry, and I've seen that there are black Daggs living in the D.C., mm-hmm. Alexandria, Virginia area. And I guess I, what I'd like to do is try to find possibly who sold them to Armfield, and did they come from a plantation mm-hmm. in the Alexandria area or were they bought from the outside? And I'll, I'll be contacting you, Ms. Uh, Ms. Ba, mm-hmm. um, to consult you, you know, to get your services to kind of assist me with that. And on um, New Orleans, at the Historic New Orleans Collection on March 21st, there will be an all-day symposium on the slave trade from Virginia to New Orleans, Mm-hmm. And it will be a live telecast from the Library of Virginia uh, in New Orleans will be taking place there. Oh, okay. Thank you. I want to add something to just what you're saying. Um, presently, I'm working. I'm working. Um, I have a client, um, and his last name is not um, Deggs. But what happened is that uh, the Deggs sold property to him, and it was a black Deggs. And we are talking about um, in around. Um, I think um, um, in 1880, I think is when his ancestor received his property, he believed it might be some type of relationship beyond just a neighborly. It could be they could be siblings, just they have um, different surnames. They, um, his particular ancestor comes out of Essex County, and they end up selling it in Stafford, Virginia. But the, um, but the person who, um, who um, his ancestor is very close to, is a Diggs, D-A-G-G-S, in Stafford, Virginia. So um, um thing about Onfield and Franklin had advertisement all over. They had they were advertising in Baltimore, Maryland. They were advertising in Richmond, asking um, slave owners um, to sell their slaves to them. Um, so, um, you know, it could be all over. But I have seen the, the name Diggs in Essence County, Virginia, and in Stafford County, Virginia. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. 
Okay, well, we have another question. Uh, this is area code 202. You're live. Question or comment? Uh, I have a question. Um, I'm actually, uh, I live locally uh, to the Alexandria area, but I'm not from here. Uh, but I've kind of become enraptured with the, the history and the genealogy and whatnot. I'm actually, actually, I was laughing when uh, your guest mentioned the Masons. I'm actually like a Masonic historian locally. And one thing that I found interesting when I compare this area's uh, history to like the area like where my family's from, which is more Alabama uh, area, is the the level of access the free black community had. Uh, and I, and I, I was reading about the the, the Pearl uh, ship uh, history, and I, I just thought it was interesting how you have this free black community in D.C. as well as in Alexandria, but yet Alexandria is this hub of slave trading. So I was hoping that your guess, if I if, if I missed that earlier, if maybe she could expand on how some of these people were able to accomplish that when you had like Franklin and Armfield down the street, you know? <laughs> um, yes. Um, also, uh, uh, Washington, D.C., too, where the National Archives is standing today, that was a slave market, and they were selling them like nobody's business there, eat, uh, at the same thing. Um, I don't know how the people actually moved around. I know I would have gotten out of the Dodge if I see uh, people in chain and I'm free. I would think, oh, God, I could be next, and I definitely would have gone north. But um, they did exist with each other. Um I have read numerous articles, I, I want to say maybe in the thousands, because as I was doing, as I do my research, I try to be as thorough as possible. So I'm reading the history as well as reading what was going on in the newspapers at that period of time, and also I'm doing the research so I can get a complete feeling of the what what the environment is in, at during that time, and some of the articles I have read of Alexandria during it during during the uh, time of slavery is that some of the people were talking in the paper how they would hear the slaves actually hollering and crying as they had taken them from the Duke Street slave pen and taking them down to the Potomac and putting them on the slave ships. And some people I think just got used to it like it was you know like regular business. I think with the black community, I believe that Alexandria had its own underground railroad. I think the freed blacks assisted the slaves as much as they could without getting caught. And um, sometimes some of the houses, when they when they renovate and they finding like they had secret like compartments built in, and they take it as extra rooms. Maybe somebody covered it up over the years to to and when they remodeled it. But I believe they could have been really places where people hid, hid, hid um, you know, slaves. Robertson, um, which is called Davis Chapel, and it's called Roberts Memorial Methodist Church. That church um, building been there since 1832. It's a black church. And it's um, it could have been slaves could have um, gone to church there and disappeared because they had an underground railroad. So I think what happened is that the black community really the free black community tried to assist as much as they could without losing their own freedom. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Okay, Char. Well, you can go on and continue to share information with us. <laughs> the, the callers are just having a good time calling you to ask you questions, but please go on and share as much as you can with us. This is such interesting information. Okay, thank you. Another thing, too, uh, in doing um, genealogical research on African Americans, 
uh, I think that some things are overlooked, uh, basically because I see the kind of classes are being taught out there. Um, and I think any time that you're doing research and you are you're attending a conference, you need to focus on what you're working on now. It's you know you, it's like a you know a kid in a candy store. You see all of these classes, you're so interested in them. But if you take courses that you're not working on, you're going to forget the information. Plus, you won't be able to ask the important questions that you need. Um, okay. For instance, like um, when I um, when I was taking a lot of these classes, I'll be taking everything. I took pa- um, slave. Pa- I mean, I took a, what is it? A passenger um, list class. I wasn't researching nobody on a ship, <laughs> but I took the class. And then when I did get a chance to re- needed it, I had to go back and take it all over again because I forgot everything. Plus, I had a lot of questions. Well, in the research that I, like I said, when I was doing the research in Alexandria on African Americans, um, for instance, um, you will see somebody in the 1900s that is maybe 50 years old and stuff like that. What Sometimes what I do when I come across somebody that, that seemed like she kind of affluent or whatever and she's in the 1900s, I'll do a reverse genealogy and take it back to see where she come from. And I found most find out, especially with some of the females, they come from parents who were free before 1865. They were able to be educated. So when when the time came for everybody to be emancipated, they were better uh they were in a in a in a position to become a teacher. And so I found out a lot of the free black women became teachers in Alexandria and was able to um make earn a living for themselves. Also a great deal of them did not marry. And it could be because they couldn't find mates that was just as educated as they were. So um so what happened is that also in Alexandria I've been able to collect pictures. I've been going all out Ohio, wherever I can find any vendor that specialized in old photos and I've been able to find uh, pictures about Alexander all over the place. And I have a picture of Alexander at a time during the Civil War down at the Potomac. Actually, it was called Fishtown. Now, in the city of Alexander, you have about six or seven distinct black neighborhoods that started prior to the Civil War. Fishtown, you got one that's called the Bird. And, and it's short for Petersburg because slaves who came from Petersburg settled in that area and called that place Petersburg because that's where they came from. We got a place called Haiti, Haiti they call it, but it's Haiti. It's just pronounced differently. And we believe that people who actually came from Haiti, and that's another story in itself to tell, but they actually were were sent to Haiti during the Civil War, and it didn't work out. And Lincoln sent a ship and brought them back, but they didn't take them back to Fort Moreau. They took them actually to um, to Alexandria. And I must uh, thank uh, um, um, uh, Sama down in um, down in Hampton Roads who. Um, basically told me about that and 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 I'm glad she did because one of my descendants connect to one of the people who came back came from Haiti and settled in Alexandria and um and how are they spelling Haiti they spell it, it the same H-A-Y? way they just pronounce it's it the yeah same way, yeah, oh, same okay. way but it just say Haiti <laughs> that's all that's how they pronounce it and so what okay. happened is that these neighborhoods early neighborhoods tie into where these people come from 
Mm-hmm. And that's something I found throughout the research. Um, and um, so, like, we have the Parker Gray District where Parker Gray High School ended up being a high school. It started off as a school that only went to the eighth grade, and then they graduated their first high school class in 1936. It started in 1920, but they never did go to the 12th grade. They only went to the 11th grade. Um, and um, so what happened, if you wanted a 12th grade education, you had to go someplace else. And um, they called that area Uptown. We call it the Parker Gray District today. So when you're doing research, you got to know that history. you got to know that history. Um, um, it was different ways of me connecting people in Alexandria to the cemetery because sometimes somebody buried a child and they have a location, they'll say, um, 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 Grantsville. Grantsville was another area in Alexandria that was a black area, and um, and if I, and then I knew that the person that I'm researching to, to to this day still live in an area. They don't call it Grantsville anymore, but they live in the same area that Grantsville is. That Grantsville existed, not knowing they didn't go far from the tree, mm-hmm. and um, and don't know their history. A lot of African Americans didn't talk about um, slavery. And based on my own people and dealing with a lot of older people, because I interviewed, I have over 180 interviews of these descendants. Um, I talked to their older people in the family. And nobody wanted to talk about pain. When they got their freedom, they looked forward. They were not going to look backwards. They didn't want their children to know they were grown people being beat to death or raped or, you know, um, dehumanized. They wanted to look forward, and they made that decision that they're only going to look forward and things going to be better from now on. But by them doing that, we have a, a hard time trying to piece their life and piece our history. So what happened is that in so many ways, they left information in their own way. It's just that we have to dig a little harder to find it. Sometimes it's in associations they belong to, in the neighborhoods that we did not know that the name of that neighborhood connected to their history. And so you have to look at, you have to go outside the box. Why did they just stay in this area called Petersburg? What is this place? Why did they name it Petersburg? You have to ask yourself constantly questions. And when I started finding out, as I was researching the people and finding out, and they came from Petersburg, I said, oh, one person, then the next person in that same neighborhood, and the next person, they clearly told me why that area was named Petersburg. Fishtown was another place. People who worked at the wharf and that area was called Fishtown. It was seasonal work. It only lasted for two months out of the year. They worked there, and they would have their little shanties, and they closed it up. And then they went to the bird, which was Petersburg, but the bird and and um and and um Fishtown bordered each other. The neighborhood bordered each other. And so I was able to get a picture of in eighteen sixty of people working down at um in Fishtown, um, bringing in the fish and cleaning it and, and that's very precious to me. And so so I like to get visuals about, you know, about the uh, places I research, especially in my, in my hometown where I was born, to understand the history much more. And then um, some of the older people that I have interviewed, they have shared their pictures with me. I have about five scanners in my house that can, for all occasions, 
<laughs> I got a scanner. <laughs> so if you if if I can feed it through, I got one. If it doesn't feed, I got two flat beds. <laughs> I got each one. And as soon as I have a client, I first ask them what kind of pigeons. Say they're old. I bring my flat my flat bed um, scanner with me. Um, I got portable. Um, um, uh, what is it? Portable printers. You know, digital. You name it. I got the equipment. So when an opportunity comes, I'm ready. So I don't want to miss anything. So I go. I actually go. I'm, matter of fact, in the next for the whole month of March, I'm at. I have appointments throughout the month, going to elderly people homes and actually scanning their pictures. And so. Wow. Um, so well, you have two comments coming out of the chat. Uh, this is mm-hmm. from Cecilia. She's saying fascinating history here. So helpful for genealogy. And then Karen is just kind of saying she she would imagine that some of those neighborhoods have disappeared that you just mentioned. Are they still there? Some of them are not called the same. And Mm -hmm. um, Alexandra is going through urban removal, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's coming Mm -hmm. to Georgetown. And with every new group, eventually they're going to want to see names about themselves. It's just a matter of time. But Mm -hmm. the point is that the streets um, from the old maps, we have the same streets, Wilf Street, King Street, Washington Street, and we have a section off to what the neighborhood was called. So even if they change the name, if you know the streets, they're probably not going to change King Street or Wilf Street, their names, but some of the names that are associated with African Americans, they could be in danger. We have a Snowden Street after Snowden School. We have a Hollowell School. Uh, Hollowell Street. We have a Parker Gray Street. That might change because that you know, depending on the ethnic group that comes there and the power to be, they might eventually change those names. But the point is that we have older maps where we can match, and that's what you need to do when you do your research. You need to get the older maps to be able. Um, the census would tell you who's in the family and how people connect. But really the good stuff is when you do the real digging down and you find out mm-hmm. the associations, the schools they went to, the occupation, what did they do, um, what did they die of, what epidemic was going on, um, mm-hmm. whether um, the people were movers or shakers in their church, whether they were political. That's where you build up and be able to tell a beautiful narrative of the individuals that you're researching. So, um and you can do it even in rural. I'll be giving a um, four workshops at the Fairfax County Genealogical Society in March, somewhere in March the 20th, something that weekend. And and I'm going to talk about doing community research in urban areas and doing community research in rural. Also, I'm going to be talking about writing a narrative and timeline. And that's very important. It was very important for me when I was keeping up with all of these people I was researching. Um to be able to um, tell their story and tell it as completely as I can, and that's what you need to look at your people. You need to make them feel. You make. You need to talk about them like they're alive. You need to feel their presence, and your research should re- reflect that. Absolutely, absolutely. I just love this. I love it because it is so important. That's why we talk about. History and genealogy. One without the other is incomplete. Yes. So any any other gems you want to share with the group as we move close to the end of the show? 
Yes, I want to tell uh, people that um, no matter whether your people are living in rural areas or you research in a rural area or a um, or a um, city area, use the newspaper. I did a search on the newspaper. Um, I'm going to be releasing a new blog starting next month, and it's going to be actually posting information on um, enslaved people. And um, I'm going to ask all genealogists to do the same. I'm going to be doing Virginia, but Virginia is a big place. Somebody else can do Virginia. Somebody can do their county. Because if you've been doing genealogy for a long time, you've probably got a lot of stuff. And trying to decide what you're going to do with it, it'd be very important if you can and you can have a blog set up and just post that stuff, post that information, given the the citation, the proper citation, where the person can get it. Um, you know, and just put out the information on the slaves or, or freed people or whatever. But one of the things that I did throughout the newspaper is that I put in um, the um, um, slaves. I forgot what search engine I used, but I, I was researching to find out how many slaves lived past um, slavery and they died. And I was blown away in the amount of hits I got. I think it was in the thousands. And what happened is that a lot of people who were born as slaves died in the 1930s and the 1940s. I got this idea from the slave narratives. I said the slaves, um, the people who did the slave narratives during the WPA, they probably didn't cover everybody. So I said, I wonder how many else was out there. And I started seeing newspaper articles on people who were from Virginia who had migrated to New York, and they were 103 years old, and they died in, in the 1930s. They gave their slave owner information in there, I mean, stuff that you would not believe. And if that's your ancestor, you would want to know that. And so um, I would tell, like I said, think outside the box, you know, and you 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 will catch so much when you cast your net, you won't believe the amount of information that you will be able to uncover. That's right. That's right. And you're just telling people, please don't limit yourself. As you say, cat. I mean, just throw it out. You know, look, look as far as you can. And you're right. I mean, using the newspapers is so important. But even, like you said, some of those slave narratives, because the people did not die. They lived way into the 1930s. And so they shared a, a lot, a lot of information. So there's um, some questions coming out here about the timeline, the timelines and and your research. And so you want to say a little bit more about the timelines? I guess this is something you mentioned earlier in the, about yes. the community. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I, I do. I'm I was successful in doing my project simply because. Um, my undergrad is in urban studies, so I know how to study a community. So I put the people that I'm researching, even in my own family, in a community. We, nobody is an island out here. You connect to other people. And doing that, I had, like, for instance, if I was to do my parents, my father came to Alexandria in 1954. So I would have 1954 in Alexandria, Virginia. That's on my timeline. The next big event, he got a job later that year in 1954. The following year, my mom comes up. So that's the next thing on my timeline. 1955, my mother comes up to Alexandria. 1956 is when they got married. So I'm building this timeline on them, what they were doing, uh, trying to 
um, it, it, to me, my timelines will be on a yearly basis or what they did within this year. So when you get ready to write your narrative on that person, you have everything you need from your timeline. Mm-hmm. And so you are really listing them down for every piece of information you can find. Um, I remember going to my my father died in 1978, and I started doing genealogy in 1981. And I went there just as proud as Proud Mary on his job in 1982 and said, I want my father's records. And I said, I'm a genealogist. <laughs> so they looked at me. They didn't know what that was. And they kept looking at me. My father was a foreman for a construction firm. And so they told me that they had filed this away and, you know, it's in the archives. And I'm sitting there. I said, well, I, I said, well, they said it would take us time to go through it. I said, well, I'm going to take a seat here. I'll wait. And they were shocked. And they kept looking at me. <laughs> and four hours later, somebody said, if we don't give this woman what she wants, she'll be here all night. And so they went out <laughs> to the uh, trailer and they brought me my dad's files. Well, in my dad's files, I never knew that my sister, one of my sisters, was a, had sickle cell trait because back then when a person got sick, their job, the, the, the insurance company reported back to the job everything on their family and what they went to the doctor for. So I couldn't get my sister's medical record, but I got my dad's employment records and everything I needed to know about our health was in there. Wow. Thought outside the box. So I had that in my timeline. And had that in my timeline. Yes, and I had it in my timeline. So what we see today might have been different how they recorded things then. Back in the sixties, your your job, every time you went to the doctor and you you used that health insurance, they reported back to work what it to to that to your um to your employer because he they were to carry your insurance. That went into your file. So you might not be able to get the medical records because of the privacy thing, but you might be able to get the employment records of your ancestor that will include the medical information. So I filled in all of this timeline. So when I I, um, write up the narrative, I know everything. Um, I did research on my grandmother's um, brother because he left a – a, a child in Germany. He during World War Two he stayed he fathered the child and left that child and that child ended up hiring me as a genealogist and we did not even know that we were related. So I'm gonna make this story real short. What happened is that I knew about my uncle being in World War Two but I had not done extensive research on him. So then I turned and I did deep research on him one year, seven days a week. I was on his case. By the time I finished what I was doing on him, I was able to tell his son what his dad, when the day his dad died, what was in his stomach, because I had his autopsy report. I knew what, where he died. I knew what he died at a VA hospital. I knew the room number. I took him there when he flew here from Germany. I took him to uh, Salem, Virginia, and made appointment for them to show him the room he died in, which was now turned into adult daycare. I was able almost to tell you from day to day what this man was doing, all because of the extensive research. I got his military records. I got his, he went to a nursing home. I got those records. I was able to tell, if this man sneezed, I would told you he sneezed on such and such a date. I built a whole timeline on him. And then we had no pictures of him because I did not know him in my lifetime um, he died in 1987, but my father never talked about him, and so I didn't know anything about him. So what happened is that I was able to trace 
his brother, which was my grandmother's other brother, I was able to tr- find where he died and found out that he had a stepdaughter living, and that st- stepdaughter had pictures of my uncle who was in World War II because he wrote his brother all the time. I had over 332 pictures I got from her, and luckily she didn't throw them out. She said she didn't throw them out because she thought one day somebody might want them, his family. She knew it was not her family, but she didn't throw it out. I gave that woman 200 bucks, kissed on her forehead. She was shocked to death. I said, because most people would have thrown it out. And so... Oh, that is wonderful. So, you know, so what happened, I was able to give his son, make him whole, you know, he did not know his dad. His dad never. His dad didn't claim him when he was living, on his birth certificate. But he he looked a spitting image of his dad. Matter of fact, spitting image. Only difference is that one is light, one is dark. And I was able to piece that man's life together with pictures and everything. But I do my research a little different. I I I'm a little bit you know, crazy about it, and I stay on it, you know, seven days a week. Sometimes I forget that I'm married, you know, and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> so so uh, I got a kid or I got relatives. I just, you know, I just, like a hound dog, I stay on it until I, you know, till I feel some satisfaction there. So, um, and I'm not expecting anybody to be like that, but that's how I do my research, and that's how I get the results I get, you know, Um well, you know, this is that deep passion. I mean, we I can hear it. I can hear it in you. You have so much. I mean, someone's saying they're, they're in kindergarten with you right now because you're really just teaching them. <laughs> this, is, this is wonderful, Char, just wonderful. Uh, look, you can go, just continue on. What else you okay. Tell us, um, um, let me see. Also, people have difficulty finding women. Okay, um, when I started doing research back in 1981, I started on my father's side. My father had died in 1978, and I knew only his mom's name. And my mom is very, you know, she's she's so different from her children. My mom is very timid, and she had five aggressive kids. We're we're very competitive and very aggressive, and so she never asks questions. If she wants a question asked, she will always tell her kids, and we get the you know question. We'll get it. We'll find it. We'll do it. And so what happened is that I started on my father's side of the family, and what happened is that um, I did not know. I, I knew my father was kind of spoiled, brat, but I didn't even know beyond that. And I found out that my grandmother had, uh, had 24 children. Four sets of twins. Only one twin lived out of the four. Most she had seventeen kids that made it to adulthood. And out of those seventeen kids, uh, my dad was the last boy, and three girls came after him. So he was quite spoiled. And so what happened is that um, I had to deal with a lot of secrets um, in that family, and and I had nobody who would talk to me, and that bothered me. I said, why won't they talk to me? And and then what happened is that I got it in my head, I'm going to find out some of these secrets, and I'm going to blackmail them, and I really did. And so what happened is that I found out that my grandmother uh, basically um, had an affair, and, and was um, and my grandfather was sick for many years, and she was planning on getting married to her boyfriend, but they were just waiting for my grandfather to die. But they nobody knew that. Um, only except my my aunts, and they wouldn't talk about it. 
So then I found out one of my aunts lied about her when she got married. She lied about who her parents were, and she lied about her age. She was 15 instead of 18. And so <clears throat> when I would go to Halifax County, I would go visit them, and I always give them some money. So they, I told them I was coming down. They all lined up, and they were there to receive whatever money I was going to give them. And I told them, I said, you, you know, you all won't help me with my genealogy. You won't talk to me. So I had to do it on my own. And I said, I got something on every one of you. And they looked, and when I started telling them, they were shocked. They said, well, who told you that? I said, I know. And I said, if you don't tell me what I, I know, I'm going to tell all your business right here. And they told me everything I needed to know. <laughs> I had to definitely blackmail them to get it out of them. And I found, you know, I was just so shocked. My, I didn't even know my father came from a wealthy family and land. They were poor with money, but wealthy in land. They had 144 and a half acres of land more than many African-Americans in Halifax County, um, but they didn't have cash. So over time, every time my grandmother needed money, she would sell land and sell land until she got to a point she didn't have any more, more to sell. And, but I applied that same tactic with most of my genealogy. I, 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 um, when I get a person that doesn't want to talk, then I know it's a secret. I just have to find out what it is, and if I can find out a little bit about it and tell it to them, they'll think I know the whole peace and they would tell me what I need to know. And I have used that throughout and I have been successful in and been able to get people to talk who refuse to talk. Mhm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> come out by any means necessary. <laughs> oh yes, I mean yeah, especially <laughs> when you especially when you're working on a project, the city um um we had different times when, when we supposed to have been having our dedication. When they hired me in 2008, they were looking at having the dedication by 2012. And I, and I mean, I was doing it in so much speed. And like I said, I was carrying a full-time job. And I had resistance because people didn't know me. And Alexandra, if you're not a home, if you're not from there, they're not going to talk to you. And they don't have no respect for the city. Because the city has taken their land over the years, they have lied to them, they have done so many different things to them, and they're still, you know, are very um, much um, angry about that. And so what happened is that I, um, I was, I was racing against time. And so um, once I, once I got, you know, they said I was a home girl. Everything opened up, and I had to make sure I had to know the right people to tell them that, yes, I was born in Alexandria. I'm, I'm not a stranger. I went to, you know, this school. I went to that school, and I had to get people to vouch for you. So when you're doing genealogy, you want to make those type of friends. You want to make sure that you, uh, that, that, that you, that you uh, have uh, people that, um, that somehow have a, a large uh, following themselves, and you are able to... Um, be friends with them. Almost all the churches in Alexandria, I have a group of people that I connect to. Now, one church is a little bit more difficult than the other, and I haven't been able to crack them yet, but I'm sure in time I will. But of the other churches, um, I, I can basically uh, say that I have a very good relationship. When I uh, co-authored the book, those same churches were able to, the people that I connect to, they were the ones who set up book signings there. So it's been a lasting relationship. I still call over 100 people a month because the descendants are like family to me now. So I call and check on the older ones, how you doing. I email the younger ones. And so I stay 
stay in touch with them. And now I'm writing my second book uh, about the process and, and how I went about doing what I did and how they connect to the cemetery. So you need to make those connections. Um, you need to find out what make them tick. I have some people... Um, um, that um, older people who like to go out to eat, but they're retired, they can't afford it. So you take them out to uh, lunch just one time, you got a friend for life, you know. <laughs> Some of them like flowers. I mean, I have had things from edible, um, the edible fruit delivered. It made a big hit. I mean, that person is my friend for life, you know what I'm saying? So you got to find whatever it takes, you got to find what make um, make that person. But the history in Alexandria is so deep. I mean, I have list of first black firefighters. We're talking about in the um 19 uh in the, in the 19th century. You got black firefighters in Alexandria. Nobody knows that information. And That's um, right. And you got black postal service who was not a post, uh, not a mailman in Alexandria. He lived in Alexandria, but he actually delivered mail in D.C. And people don't know that. And um, mm-hmm. you have also um, the first black superintendent of schools was Mr. Ferdinand Day, who just died in January, January the second. Um, People do know that, but how long will it take for them to forget that? Um, you have um, um, Earl Lord, the first black NBA in the United States, come out of Alexandria, Virginia. His age group knows that, but the younger people didn't know that, and he's in his 80s. Um, you have um, the first black person uh, who actually sat in the um, orchestra, He a musician at arena stage, Mr. Arthur Dawkins from Alexandria, Virginia, and still lives in Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia. And he also is in his 80s. Um, Alexandria had the first dream team of basketball in the 1940s from Parker Gray. They didn't even go to the 11th, 12th grade. Came out of Alexandria, Virginia. You have a um, scientist um, coming out of Alexandria. Scientists in the 1950s went to the, some of the best schools. We have a um, a first black um, uh, uh, what is it major, and his two sons are major, and they're the only family that has two sons and a father that was a major black in the United States. There in Alexandria, Virginia, graduated from the the father graduated from Parker Gray when it was segregated. He's in his eighties. So it's, I mean, all these people. Once I got started on the research, and once I got the confidence of the uh, of, of the of the community, they love telling me their stories now. And I always have people come up and say, um, "Make sure you put me in a book now." <laughs> you know why I wasn't in this book? And so they so were when like, "When is your second book coming out?" When is I'm that work, second? I'm working title on it. Second I, book? I'm working on it, and I haven't signed a contract. I'm hoping that it would be out um, by the fall. By the fall. Now, I have uh-huh. to ask you this question before we mm-hmm. close out, because you mentioned something about finding the female, and there's mm-hmm. a question. Okay, oh, yes. what are your strategies for finding the, the surname of the female? Okay, remember this. is Nobody is an island. 
So when you um, when you look in at the female, you're going to look at you're going to look at like all your research, everything they're associated with. You're going to look at the organizations they belong to, the churches they belong to, and you're going to look at um, also anybody in the household in the census that have a different surname than the head of the household. Mm-hmm. And that's not always. They're going to say sister-in-law or whatever. Sometimes they'll say a bo- uh, person is a boarder, and they end up mm-hmm. being their sister-in-law. So you want to? I do research on everybody in the household. I want to know when they died. I'm going to work them all the way out until they die, who they married. And also, you're going to look at the neighbors because many times siblings near, lived or, or lived next door to each other, or they lived next door to their parents. So you're going to look at everything that associated um, that that person uh, was associated with. If it's a black high school in that area that they're living in, it's important that you um, contact um, the school uh, system to find out where the archives are and see how far those records go back and see can you find that individual going to school. If they have an unusual first name, it'd be easier to find what their what their what their um, Maiden name is because of the unusual um, given name. Um, I had somebody named Theola. It's not that I don't know no other Theola in 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 uh, Alexandria. I was able to find out Theola. She was a Chamberlain, but she, what happened is that she was a Martin before she got married. Did not know that she was a Martin because of that first name. When I went through the school records year by year by year, starting with 1920. I found out she graduated in 1942, Theola. Um, when I found out that uh, last name was Martin, then I searched for a marriage license, and sure enough, she married a chamber. So you okay. have to use everything they're associated with. Don't leave nothing unturned. Just use everything. But you know what? One of the things I'm hearing you also say, because you say get to, get to know the people in the community, so mm-hmm. you're telling people you're going to have to step away from the community. I mean, excuse me, step away from the computer and get Mm -hmm. into the community or call somebody in the community so that you could get the inside information Mm -hmm. that you may not find on on that computer. Yes, and see, when I started doing genealogy, the computer was not the thing that we used. I learned in the field. I had a very good teacher, um, Mrs. Greta Irby, when I joined the D.C. Genealogical Society, and I sat beside her, and I held tight to her. And every time I did something, I had her review it and tell me. And she said, honey, you need to do this, and honey, you need to do that. And so over the years, I learned everything I could from her, and then I started taking every possible workshop, class, conference, whatever I could. Um, but I tell you this, um, don't let – I'm, I'm a Muslim, so I do not – um, you know, go to, to traditionally to church. But when I got to do what I got to do, I put on that dress and I go to church. Then when the descendants came, I um, tossed up a coin and said, which church I'm going to go to. And I'd never been to a Methodist church, so I decided to go to a Methodist church because when the descendants came for the dedication, all of them went to church on that Sunday. And I couldn't be at all the churches because it was like, out of all descendants, their family belonged to about seven different churches in Alexandria. And I went to church, and I'm glad I went to the Methodist because I sent a letter to all the ministers to um, to acknowledge the descendants. 
And when when I was sitting there at the uh, Methodist Church, they were reading off the descendants, and they forgot a couple. And I said, excuse me, please, <laughs> you forgot two of my <laughs> descendants. And they acknowledged them, which went a long way with them, a long way, because my descendants, their families at Robert's um, Chapel, before they became a, um, what they call it, David's Chapel, then they became Robert's Memorial, they started. They built that church in 1832, where they were. Those African Americans were part of the white church called Trinity Methodist, and, and and they had been at Trinity from the time Trinity started in the 1700s. So what happened is that my descendants' families, especially from Alexandria, been at Robinson for over 200 years and been part of of of, of Trinity because their families were taken to um, church by their slave owners. That's another thing that people, I find out, that many people do not um, use. I look at, um, I do a whole lecture called Finding Mother. Mother is finding the mother church. If you know that your family was in this church in the 1870s, don't stop there. That church came out of a white church, chances are. you got to find mother. If you find mother, you would be able to find a slave owner. And because people took their slaves to church. Mm-hmm. And the whites recorded that stuff where our, especially Baptists are, in the rural areas, Baptists are not good in recording stuff, early stuff. But if you find where mother is and you find your people were enslaved, or even if they were free blacks and you find where mother is and find the, the white church that they came out of, they recorded and kept their records. And you chances are you'll be able to find who owned them. Okay, well, you have just, hey, we have a hundred and something top listeners tonight, and you have just provided a wealth of information for us tonight on 19th Century Alexander and beyond. So thank you so much, Char. Um, you're going to have to come back, Char. <laughs> you're going to have but to thank come back you. on. Yes, well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so very much. So, everyone, I just want to tell everyone, listen, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, community assessment. Just understand what's in that community and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Well, thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Thank you so much, Char, for joining the show tonight. Good night, everyone. Good night.